0: Welcome back to the Someone To Tell To Podcast. What a delightful conversation. And to be able to have a guest in person always is so meaningful and just adds to the conversation. And so we're so happy to have Sean with us here today. We just literally just spent time with him in the parking lot, continuing the conversation long after he left because there's so much to talk about. And I think the thing that especially stood out to me in this conversation was just how important it is as men to be paving the way for a different type of leadership, a different type of modeling what good relationships can look like. I mean, in so many ways, we say that someone to you to was birthed out of our relationship together and our own vulnerability together. And so I think especially this month of all months with it being men's mental health awareness month, it's just a good reminder to be comfortable with vulnerability.
1: That's right. We just again out, out outside in the parking lot. We we continue to talk about this the, the aspect of vulnerability and how many people are afraid of it. And it, you know, we talked about the fact that we try to give people permission. That we're permission givers to to be who they are, to be authentic, to be vulnerable. So we hope that you will like this conversation. We found it to be to be just fascinating and so important, particularly this month and particularly as men, ourselves. So let's introduce you to Sean Harvey. Sean Harvey is the Chief Compassion Officer and founder of the Warrior Compassion Men's Studio and the Symphonia Facilitator Studio. He is actively involved and contributing to men's work, communities around the globe, and is passionate about helping men heal their wounds at a soul level to begin to love the truth of who they are. His work in personal organizational and societal transformation, inspired by 20 plus years of of purpose, talent, and organization development, consulting, uh, combined with having served on the faculties of Cornell, New York University, Baruch College, City University of New York, teaching courses in the areas of leadership, management, and organizational behavior and change. Sean is affiliated with George Washington University's Center for Excellence and Public Leadership in Washington, D.C. His new book, Warrior Compassion, Unleashing the Healing Power of Men, was released in September 2023. Warrior Compassion offers a roadmap for men's soul healing as a catalyst for systems change.
0: Well, welcome back to the Someone To Tell To podcast. It's just so good to have Sean with us today and in person. So thanks for driving all this way to be with us.
2: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Well, Sean, one of the things that we just love to do with all of our guests is just to ask, we think it's a it's kind of a we hope it's a softball question in some (laughs) ways, but it's actually a really profound question. And it's just to tell us about yourself. Mm. You know, where,
2: where I like to start, especially in these conversations, I'm a bunny dad. So I'm a rabbit educator. I've had 10 rabbit, bunny rabbits, and they were some of my biggest teachers around compassion. I remember on Christmas Eve volunteering at the shelter and there were 25 rabbits. Now, they don't make a lot of noise. So being in the solitude, in, 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 the, in, the, in the quiet with these rabbits who are prey animals, so the reality is, the quieter I become, the more active they become. So being able to just adjust my temperament and be conscious of my temperament to be able to just connect with these 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 little creatures, you know. And, and I say that because so much of my work is in the hypermasculine space, and I always think that this work around for men is about the 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 balance between strength and tenderness. And so they've been my teachers around tenderness, compassion, listening, getting quiet. Who who am I? I am someone. I, I often like to say I'm a, a man who's healing, who's here to help other men heal, and to not mandate or dictate or say I have the way, but to really offer an invitation to men to join, go on an inquiry, to discover their truth
0: and to learn how to love in a new way. So, Sean, you got a new book out, which we want to certainly do a deeper dive. But maybe for our listeners, obviously, Michael and I had spent a lot of time researching and, and, and also reading your book on an airplane the last couple of days. But just to for our listeners, maybe take take us back to your childhood a bit, which you read about earlier in the book. And and you actually, I think early on, you said that you have learned the most about masculinity from trek stops. Right. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah,
2: you know, I was I was supposed to be a third generation trucker, so becoming a a interfaith minister working with with working with men wasn't quite I think on my, my parents' radar. My my grandfather was a he hauled steel for the big three in Detroit, and was a decorated veteran uh, and. World War Two, and uh, served directly under General Patton. My father drove mostly sailboats, but he hauled sailboats. I was a trucker for about forty-three years, and my mom was a as an LTD. She was a lady truck driver, and so my father would take me out on the road from a very young age. So I was getting a sense of him, you know, and his views and. And then I was in truck stops a lot, <laughs> and so just kind of saying this is what it means to be a real man, you know, and that was my understanding from a very young age, very blue collar, very masculine, work hard, and probably more on the conservative side, you know, and I. But I was a, a fun loving kid, and and at the same time, I was, you know, I probably came out as a gay man at 15 right so living that life with my 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 truck driver family <laughs> in rural Ohio and navigating what it meant to be a gay man from a from a uh, and a gay boy because I probably figured it out when I was about seven or started to figure out when I was about seven so I think my, my childhood was tough though because I, I think while my my mother was very caring my father wasn't always there And I experienced a lot of ridicule, bullying, harassment, ostracism from a young age in school from my peers. So I probably can do the work I do because I see the world from a different perspective. I think when when you are raised as someone who's been bullied and harassed, you become an outsider. So you see the world as an outsider looking in and so it gives a very different sense of how you see the world, how you see people and, and what what you're sensitive to. And so those were those were contributors I think that you know now as I think about, you know, having had many experiences with with hurt and wounds that I've healed having great compassion for so many men who have wounding that they may not even be aware of. Suffering that they they often do in silence and not necessarily having the outlets to be able to even explore. Or there's a stigma to even look within for a lot of the men that I work with or a lot of the men that I, I wanna support. And so being able to make it accessible, make it available, and to have real and honest conversations around the ways we've been wounded both in our childhood and our experience, and just as men in the ways we've been conditioned, that can limit us from our emotional capacity. That can limit us from from even even considering like what it means to look within and to look deep, and to create deep bonds with with others, especially men. You know, in writing my book, one of the things that struck me the most—not surprised me the most, but struck me the most—was how many men said they that one of their biggest fears is being vulnerable in front of other men. And a lot of white men said, I'm afraid of other white men. And what I surmised from that was we, we often are, so many men are, are operating from an ideal standard of what it means to be a man. And so many of us don't live up to that standard. And that's where a lot of shame can be. And when we compare ourselves to men who do live up to that standard, that can be where we start to create tension
1: or can feel or experience tension what gave you the courage to be vulnerable to be different to go against the cultural norm of what was is often expected of men you've obviously been able to break through that can you can you pinpoint or describe how that happened
2: yeah i think there's three things that come to mind one I think it's an inner strength. That there's just a knowing that I had that just kept me going when I didn't want to. Two, I think I didn't I don't think I had a choice. It was either keep going or commit suicide. You know, I mean to be frank. You know, I mean I mean, so I think it was that inner strength. Important was I was surrounded by love in my family. And I think where where it started and I write about in the book as, as my grandfather, you know, my grandfather's part Cherokee. And, and as a young boy, I remember three or four years old, sitting, he would put out a cot by his bed every night. And he would tell me the stories of Little Red Chief. And Little Red Chief was a Cherokee boy who <clears throat> was being guided by the elders and the, and the warriors in the community. But the message was always how to be a compassionate warrior. So as gruff and as strong and as, as, as hyper-masculine as my grandfather was, he would always show that tenderness to me. And then my father he would always just on the road and, and would, would, would always balance strength and, and, and softness, strength and tenderness. So I think I had those models. I don't think I was conscious of it then. But I was, and my mother would do anything for me. And so I think, I think part of it was being surrounded in love and with love. Part of it was just there was a knowing that and, a, and an inner determination. And when I came out, you know, my mother was so cool about it. And this was back in 89, right? This was a very different time. And being the precocious i I think for me i always just leaned into service you know i was working on a teen hotline for a lot of us when you feel alone and you're trying to find value for me service was the way and and so some of it may have been self-serving in the beginning but as a way to find value but flip side of it you you know I, i i i as i as i have grown spiritually, emotionally, and healed. And and in my healing journey, you know, service feels very different from maybe where it may have started. But, you know, when I was 16, I started a gay and lesbian youth group for the city of Dayton, Ohio, which still exists today, 30-something years later, serving all of Southwest Ohio. And now when I look back and every decision I've made in my 20s and my 30s, when I would follow money status title anything that would like feed my ego I would fall flat on my face in six months when I would get quiet and and look within and ask myself what was that about that thing I loved doing creating that organization at 16 and it would always bring me back to my my commitment to service and when I would follow that path things would just blossom and open and so I think it's the combination of those those three things.
1: I find this to be very intriguing, and fascinating because as 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 a boy also as a as a grown man now uh, I never felt as if I would fit in with other with other boys or other uh, even sometimes other men. And, and I had a lot to do uh, a lot to do with my size. I was always the smallest kid in my class. Always teamed up with the girls, just because I wasn't—I was small—and that uh, that had an effect. And interestingly, service is what I also was led to when to be in service because to help. And I—I've never—I never thought of it that way until you just talked about that. But that was always important to me. And and to be of service is 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 extremely important. It's why we do what we do, and you know it's what I want my legacy to be. And so the fact that you had a similar yearning and bent toward doing that and and being part of that is that is just fascinating to me. You know, it's it's
2: interesting. So a minister of mine, uh, my my home church is in New York, a Marble Collegiate Church, <laughs> and my minister. Once handed me, Parker Palmer's book, Hidden Wholeness. And we started talking, and, and one of the things we said was, you know, this is important for so many folks, especially those that are committed to service. And we talked about social justice warriors and how many are, you know, come into social justice from a place of wounding, but what's essential is to, is to then transition and, and do the healing work. Otherwise, we're bleeding on everyone in the process in our pursuit of justice or our pursuit of service. And so how important it is to, to be on the journey of healing and, and, and awakening and, and spiritual awakening, to be able to then you know, recalibrate and relax the ego so we can truly be of service and we can truly be in a transcendent place beyond ourselves and our, and our needs and our unmet needs and really be there to serve others unconditionally from a place of unconditional love.
0: I know in one of the interviews I was listening to in the last week, you had talked about the difference between woundedness and brokenness. And I think that that would be really helpful for our listeners. It was very helpful for me to make that distinction because here's someone to tell to you, I mean, we, we do our very best to simply value people and to look look at people not as broken human beings, but just as human beings. And there's a big difference there. And so we'd love for you just to talk a little bit about the difference between woundedness and, and brokenness.
2: You know, I think we, we, we are a society that pathologizes and looks at what's wrong with someone, right? And I think that gets ingrained. And so I think that's even why so many men don't pursue like some of the, the well being work because of, of the stigma. You know, but I think taking a spiritual perspective, the way I look at it is, we're whole. We just may be blocked from our wholeness. We're perfect as we are, but what's getting in the way of us being able to see that and be able to experience it? And so, when I was working on the book, the the original title, so based on my my TED talk, was going to be "Compassion Makes the Warrior." But the folks at Georgetown were like, "Yeah, no, we don't like that." I'm like, "Why? There's too many words." I'm like, "It's four words. No, no, too many words." like, okay, cool, got it. So I said, what well, could be the compassionate warrior? And they said, or what about warrior compassion? I had to really think about it. And as I sat with it, I'm like, oh, yeah. The compassionate warrior is asking a man to take in an identity that he, or may, he may or may not be willing to take on. But warrior compassion is an energy, thinking of it as an energy, it's, it's an energy within that when we get beyond our protective layers, we have access to. And in order to look at ourselves and the good, the bad, the ugly, the things where we have shame and regret, to hold that from a place of love, that's that energy of warrior compassion, the courageousness to look at that. So I think to answer your question, you know, I think right now a narrative that so many men are hearing is that you have to change because something's broken or you're broken, which. As men, you know, I think the typical response is either to say forget you or, or to just check out of the conversation, right? And I, I just offer, or you might be wounded you're, because you're human. And as men, we just don't often have the same access to healing as, say, women, either because of stigma, because of availability, because of access, or because we just don't know it's, it's there. And we don't know. When I, when I was the head of personal transformation and well-being for Eileen Fisher, the fashion company, so many men would come through our personal transformation experience. And even just from the first assessment we would give around the, the Enneagram, getting that perspective to see themselves from their essence and their shadow and have language in real terms around who they were And then to go through somatic experiences and contemplative experiences and mindful experiences and creative experience and play experiences, and they're like, I didn't know this was possible. I didn't know I could see myself this way. And that, to me, said, you know, maybe this journey is not about us fixing things. Maybe this journey is about us discovering who we are. And to realize the ways that our mask, our protective layers have protected us for so long to survive, to thrive, to to excel, to play the game. And maybe the real courage and the real healing is to be able to look at and honor our own journeys and honor the ways we have been divinely designed to be in this world and contribute in this world. And so I, I see it as, and, and it's funny, my boyfriend, who we are very different on the political spectrum. <laughs> Let just put it like that. And at the same time, the one thing he writes, like whenever he talks about my book, is wounded, not broken. And I think that in today's society, men need to just have that distinction. They're not damaged. You know, the, the thing that, that I often see is I think a lot of men suffer in silence. I don't think there's a lot of access to be able to talk about and a, a lot of permission that men have for themselves to talk about what's really going on for them. And, and I think a lot of it stems from disconnection. I think a lot of it stems from over-intellectualization. I think a lot of it stems from over-protection. And I think the antidote is connection. It's intimacy and it's love. And so being able to have men just be able to, to start to have the anecdote of connection is often where men start to say, oh, I'm not so broke. Well, first of all, when I find that men are in community with each other and they start to get real and they start to get honest, the one thing that happens the most is they realize they're not the only ones dealing with X, Y, or Z. And they they get out of that idea of terminal uniqueness. I'm the only one that's struggling with this. And then when they realize that, then so much can open up for them. And that's, I think, one of the first places to realize they're not broken. They're not damaged goods. It's it's a place that offers men hope.
1: One of the things that's most important for us to do when we're listening to someone, when we're being supportive of someone, whether it's male or female, is to be able to tell them, for, for them to be able to recognize that they're not alone, that they're not the only one who feels this way or have had this experience or... Is, is, is scared of a, of a certain thing or regrets certain action. And that is, there's, there's almost nothing better sometimes than to remind someone and have them grasp it that they're human. <laughs> they're simply human and they're not alone. And I think particularly for men where it has been traditionally harder and traditionally just not cool, to be vulnerable, to be open, to, to express and, and talk intimately and, and share fears and insecurities, to be able to help someone understand that it's not just them. That we, we all <laughs> have our insecurities and our fears and regrets and worries. And that, that, that kind of work is, is just so important to us. And we just absolutely respect you for being part of that work and helping men in particular to understand that and and know it as we as the three of us know and maybe not everyone else knows that November is men's mental health awareness month and you know it's a it's about raising awareness that that men have mental health challenges emotional health challenges and therefore often relational challenges because of it We found a a graphic recently that that says this, and it says, men cry, men have panic attacks, men have insecurities, men self-harm, men have eating disorders, men go to therapy, men have, you know, just have trauma, men have body image issues, men are abused, Men deserve support. Men feel things. Men need love and care. That's just beautiful. What would you like to say about that?
2: There's, a, there's an organization, it's on LinkedIn, called Hacking HR, and they're, they're putting these memes up every day. So I, I saw that meme, I think yesterday or this morning. And <clears throat> they, they invited me to speak, and they had a number of different, Topics around anxiety, around vulnerability, around mindfulness. And there's like, just pick one. <laughs> and I'm like, heeny, meeny, money, mo, right? I checked in with myself. I even checked in with my boyfriend, man. And I said, I think the one that's at the heart of the issue is the one that said, from isolation to connection. You know, and I think so much, so much of that is for so many men is being in isolation and i think even in our world of social media we have such a level of faux intimacy and not the real intimacy that is needed that's essential for that human connection i have another thought too what i was saying to someone the other day was it's because imp- a lot of my work is with police military and i often say i do culture work in hypermasculine systems and cultures And I think one of the things that I think is important is to be able to talk about a changing world, to be able to talk about healing, but to talk about these things in a way that don't emasculate men in the process. I think two things are are what what I've noticed for so many men, you know, masculinity is this thing that's out here. Yet for so many men, they have internalized it as a reflection of them. So as we talk about masculinity, We name it things like unhealthy or toxic masculinity. They're often taking it as a personal attack on them. Versus, no, 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 it's this thing out here that has nothing. It's that you're in relationship with, but it's not you. So I think part of this work is why it's challenging is so many men have have taken it on as their identity. I think part of the work is to help them see this isn't part of their identity. It's part of something they're in relationship to. And then second is to really explore what emasculation looks like for men, what it feels like for men. And, and one of the things you were saying that, I, that was coming up for me earlier, another part of this work is not just to be with men's emotions, but to also be with men's shame. And I think that is a powerful emotion that says, again, it's taking on the identity of I screwed up, no, I'm, you know, and the difference I often see is I screwed up is one way to look at it. But the shame spiral goes to, I, I am a screw-up. And when we internalize those messages, and I think for so many men, it's where men are coming from a place of shame that that's what we, we wanna hold. We wanna help them hold and help them distinguish and help them to start to move away from the places where they feel shame. And I think that's where it comes in from a place of community. And being able to, to desensitize themselves and, and destigmatize and start to just allow themselves to kind of come into their own. And, and to to be able to be free, to express from their masculine, from their feminine, to express their creativity, to express their emotions. And that I think that's where true liberation, liberation for men comes from. And at the same time, being able to hold the masculinity that they value, but in healthier doses, and also balanced with you know, maybe some of the softer aspects of love, being able to have more access to to love, compassion, to empathy, to connection, to intimacy. So I think it's 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 helping men find more of a, a balanced view and expression of themselves.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you went there, Sean, because I know in your book and in some of your other interviews, you talk extensively about this idea of unconditional love and how that is the antidote to a lot of this shame and self-hatred talk. Could you maybe for a few minutes talk more about that? You know, how unconditional love manifests itself in these relationships and how that helps us overcome a lot of this negative self-talk.
2: So <clears throat> I think the, the most clear moment for me when I, when I said, oh... This is unconditional love. So I came out to my mother at 15. I came out to my father at 27. I didn't talk to my father for another 14 years after I told him. And it wasn't until his last year of his life that we reconnected. And it was one of the most awkward reunions where my father couldn't even hug me, but he shook my hand nervously. And the first day we met, met up again. He talked incessantly for five hours to not have to ask me a question because he was afraid of finding out more about me. The next day, I saw him again. He softened a little bit. He gave me a hug this time. But then four days later, I'm on a train station in New York and get a call from my dad. He's like, so how long were you and Matthew, my ex, how long were you guys married? I'm like, we weren't married, we were domestic partners. But we were together seven years. He's like, oh. And he said, well, son, I'm not, I'm not judging you, but I, 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 just, I just can't condone your life choice. And you're going to hell. <laughs> like, all right, cool. That's where we started, right? So I sat with that and struggled. I, I, I sat with that. I sat with that in anger. But the door had been opened. And so my father started calling me on, a, on you know, trying to like reconnect. And I was like, forget you, right? And then, and then I started to like, I'm like, all right, fine. He keeps calling, I'm gonna take his call. And then, I've said this story so many times and still, still gets me. <laughs> so, started taking his calls, and then I asked myself at one point, it's like, Sean, you have a choice right now. You can either stay in resentment or you can lean into love. What do you choose, it's your choice. So I leaned into love. I said, I'm going to lean into love. And I started taking his calls, and we started having conversations. It was still awkward at first. And then one day, when we're talking, and my dad's, this was during the 2016 election, right before it. So my dad keeps like giving all of his, talk, his political talking points, and I just keep challenging his talking points. And, and at one point, I said, no one and he starts laughing. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. No one ever challenges you on your BS. Do that. And he's like, no. Nah. I'm like, huh. You know I'm your son, right? It's like whatever you throw, I'm going to throw back harder because I'm a better version of you. You know how this works, right? And in that moment, he's like, yeah, I guess. And I and I I moved in that moment from being his gay son to his son. And that was the opening of our, our of our relationship. So the next. A couple conversations later, I said, you know, I want to I just take you back to that one day when I was on a train station. And you said X, Y, and Z. I said, let me break down for you, and I gave him like four levels of the impact that had on me. And in that moment, he said, oh man, I didn't realize I was, I, I didn't realize that. Oh, I apologize, I'm sorry. And that really, I think, then forged us going into a deeper and deeper relationship. And then we, and then I said, you know, and his wife was, was very mean to him. And I said, "Does your wife have anything nice to say about you? Because all I hear is she beats you up." And he, and, it, and and as he was describing it and answering, I was like, "Wow, he is he is living his own karma. He has made certain choices, and he is getting beat up on a daily basis, emotionally beat up on a daily basis by his wife." And so the next part of this was, I <laughs> I don't have to hold resentment. I can I can just forgive, you know, and the the weekend and then my my stepsister gave me a call and the weekend before my father went into hospice and so she said you know your father's going into hospice so i drove out to detroit from new york to see him and we spent about 10 or 12 hours but i i was snuck into the hospital because his wife is jehovah's witness and did not condone of his gay son so they distracted the mom that his wife the nurses protected me, and then I got to spend some time with my dad. It was very strange, and so I that day though, at one point, I to talk about this in the book. I said, you know, what what advice would you give your only your only son, your only child, biological child? And he said, in his way, son, don't get your powder wet, or keep your powder dry. But I always hear it as, don't get your powder wet. So what are you talking about my powder??" He's like "Your gunpowder, son, your gunpowder." He's like, don't, "Don't let anybody extinguish your flame. Be proud. I want you to be proud of who you are and what you are. Don't let anybody diminish who you are, or what you are. I'm proud of the man you become, and I love you." So I took that in. <laughs> was you know, that, that to me was a year of doing the work. and that was a year of me doing my work. And, and a year of me just being being loved for my dad. But it wasn't until the next day that I I really got it and I can still see it in my head. He asked me if I would feed him because he couldn't, he didn't have use of his, his he could, he didn't have strength in his arms. So here I am like feeding my father, like pudding and taking such care. And it was in that moment that I realized, oh, this is unconditional love. And so whenever anyone says that what I do is impossible, I always think back to to the heart shift that my father had and the heart shift that I had. I think in so many of our initiatives that are heart-based, we still take an intellectual view. And we're trying to fix this thing versus shift our hearts and I think the magic is when we shift our hearts. And so to me, the unconditional love, many of us have learned love with conditions. And, and if, 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 if you're a man who, who isn't in touch with your emotions, it becomes very hard to understand what love is. You, have a, you can have an intellectualized idea of love and it can be bastardized by love with conditions. I think the real journey for us as humans is to move from that intellectualized idea of love with conditions to the visceral experience of unconditional love. So when I'm asked, how as a gay man, I can work with white nationalists and far-right extremists and men in hyper-masculine environments who may not like me, who may hate me, or who may want me dead. And I say, because I've done my work. I'm able to see these men in their humanity. And I can love them in their humanity. I don't have to like their views. I can hate their views. That doesn't mean I hate them. And that's a distinction I think we need in America and, and in the world right now. Is we don't have to like the views, but that doesn't mean we don't like the person. But I also know that for so many men these views come from a place of faulty teaching and toxic conditioning, which can lead to a life of suffering that we never talk about. And so I often say, you know, I don't, it's not that I, I don't, I don't like to say I meet men where they are because that, that suggests superior, like a, as I'm coming from a superior place. And I don't think that's right. I think the reality is I've, I've gone through the, the, the muck and the dirt like any other man. My wounding. I've been homeless. I've struggled with sex and drugs. I've I I have lost jobs. I've been on the brink of breakups, bankruptcy. I mean, I've I've definitely my wounding took me to really dark places. And my my healing is taking me to very bright places. And so I often say, and I think that, you know, coming from that place of compassion, I, I meet men in their suffering. I listen for their yearning and their deep yearning, even if they're unconscious of their yearning, and I offer hope in the midst of both. Thank you for listening to the Someone To Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness,
0: veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. I want to read this quote that we use in our second book, uh, Moved with Compassion. And it comes from Meredith Gray. And she said that people have scars in all sorts of unexpected places, like secret roadmaps of their personal histories, diagrams of all their old wounds. Most of our wounds heal, leaving nothing behind but a scar. But some of them don't. Some wounds we carry with us everywhere. And though the cut's long gone, the pain still lingers. What would you want to say to those of us that still feel like the pain is lingering?
2: I think it depends on the wound and how you're holding the wound. And that it's it's it is a journey of that requires time and patience. I think the 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 oppor- the place that a lot of folks can go is to a place of darkness from those wounds. I think knowing that we're in, our, in, in the wounds, especially for, for men, is to make it okay to ask for help and just surround yourself in love. I remember when I was in a 12-step recovery program when I was like 27. When I walked in, someone that would be my sponsor for a short amount of time said, "Let us love you until you learn to love yourself." I think a lot of people, when, when we're often, I've been in this discussion lately a lot. The is is healing communal or is it something you do alone? And I, I think it's a both and. and. There's some things we have to go alone. To do some of the deep work and deep reflection, but we can't heal in isolation. And it is about healing in community. And it's often another sponsor would say, "We've been harmed by by people. We'll be healed by people. We've been harmed in community. We'll be we'll be healed in community." And so, I think love is 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 often the antidote for healing. And when we've been when we've been wounded, when we've been scarred when we when the pain lingers from from being hurt by others or hurt by ourselves the anecdote is is, is being in loving community. And one of the things that, that I, I say for so many men is you know, I used to say one of the real challenges for men is and one of the sources of pain is the disconnection. And then now, as I look at it, I think a lot of men are in spiritual crisis, and by that I mean, and when I go to a, when I go to any number of churches, I see a lot of women, and, and often older women. And I'm like, where are the men? <laughs> you know, and I, I talk about this in, in the book. I, when I was in my old church, or my church that I that I belonged to in New York, Marianne Williams would come in and do a, a weekly talk every a biweekly talk. And I, I went in once, and it was full. The entire sanctuary was full, but it was like eighty-five percent women. And, you know, a very particular, conscious type of man, right? And and then she spoke at my my an event at seminary, and I went up to her and I said, you know, I said I, I went to one of your events and I noticed that it was like eighty eighty-five percent women. I said, where where do men go for spiritual growth, spiritual community? She's like. Sean, this isn't in her way. She knows, Sean, this isn't my calling, so it's not my problem. This is your problem to figure out. But she said this. She said, a lot of men will come to me and they say they can't hear the message through me. So it's important that you figure this out because men need to be able to hear the message through someone they can hear from. And... I think for a lot of folks, a lot of men in particular who have walked away from the church, a church, a church community, it becomes very easy then to, to walk in the world without spiritual community. I think that's one of, the, one of the downsides of not being in spiritual is when you don't have that sense of community where we're not just like helping each other here, but we're also challenging each other on our moral code. We're, we're asking ourselves, what do you actually, what do you believe in at, at the core and even when I, when I, when I work with or, or, or connect with my atheist friends, I'm often like, cool, I know what you don't believe, but I'm curious, what do you believe? And often in those conversations, I'm like, "And I could see some spirituality in the things you believe. If you believe in if you're a secular humanist. You believe in humanity. Whatever you believe that goes beyond your ego and beyond yourself, there's something to work with, to play with. It takes you out of yourself, and I think that's where where some of the magic becomes. But I think long winded way of getting to your to your question, I think what I would say is, and I've seen this in recovery so often. You know, people come in at their worst. They come in at the place where they feel the most broken, where they are in, in deep wounds, and it is through community that they start to see themselves. Another, I think one of the other things we do for each other as we reflect and mirror back each other's humanity. And, and where someone may have such a low self-esteem of who they think they are, through the eyes of someone else, they can see your brilliance, see your beauty, your loving self, and remind you that you have all of that. It just might be hidden beneath a lot of the self-talk and the, and the, and the, and the ways we can beat ourselves up and the ways we can stay in the pain and the wounding and, be, and live in that. And I think the anecdote, and this is why I always believe not just in a psychological approach, but a psycho-spiritual approach to the healing, to be able to, to not just diagnose what we think is the problem that needs to be fixed. And I often say, this is not about fixing what's wrong, it's
1: healing what's wounded. So. Mm want to step back a little bit to your father again and you you talked about the unconditional love that you experienced felt witnessed gave in in his last you know at the, at the end of his life in particular do you think that it was that love that unconditional love that you showed him that caused him to say what he said about your gunpowder, about not diminishing who you are, actually at that, in that moment acknowledging who you are and accepting who you are, is it, is it the con- unconditional love that you believe did that, created that?
2: I think it may have. I don't, I don't think that was the only piece. I think it may have activated it and given us both permission to start to go into a different relationship. I mean, the the reality is I think you know, my sexuality was probably something he feared. And I think it was something he didn't understand, right? And I think fear can be a powerful thing. I think love, though, will always outweigh fear. And love will always outweigh hate. I don't think my father hated me. I think he was just afraid. I think my love opened the door that we could have the conversations and the honesty and the connection that we had to, to reignite our, our relationship. But I think it was on both of us, you know, and I think he still had a deep love for me that was just masked by the fear that when he was able to kind of peel back the fear, he was able to get, re, get back in touch with, with the love he had for me that he always had for me. So I don't, I think it was an activating agent, but I don't think it was the only agent.
0: Sean, you mentioned earlier about your work with the police and with the military. And based on your work, why do you think that these types of principles aren't exemplified or focused on in a lot of organizations or the culture in general?
2: Hmm. I think a lot of our systems are based on fear-based control. And I think we're moving towards slowly, but exponentially in a way, to love-based liberation. I think fear-based control in these systems, they were, they were developed to be able to control from the top. I think they, they, they you know, when you look at a lot of organizations, we're just starting to bring emotions, emotional capacity, emotional intelligence. I don't even like the word emotional intelligence because it's, it's, still, it's still intellectualizing and rationalizing emotions versus just bringing an emotional expression into organizations that allow for true authenticity of where people are. I was just doing a, a project for a client, and, and I just remember bringing in the word vulnerability. And not that it was triggering for so many to talk about vulnerability. The culture didn't allow vulnerability because it was all about image and, and perfectionism and analysis and intellect. So those things we valued. And so I think we've, we've established a values-based. I mean, you know, it's... For so long, we've talked about, in a very dualistic way, the analytical skills are hard skills. The emotional skills are soft skills. And I think what we're realizing is, no, they're not soft skills, they're universal skills that are essential <laughs> for anything to, to be able to make anything really happen. You know, my, my background by training is as, a, as, a, as an organizational change management person. Everything about change management You've got the vision, you've got the strategy, you've got the goals, you've got the outcomes, you've got the direction, but it's the emotional connection and the intimacy and the, and the authentic connection, that's what actually allows the change to be implemented and executed. And why we see so many change initiatives fail is because we, 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 over, we, we take an overly analytical approach and put everything into a spreadsheet without the the flexibility for the human condition to come into the into the equation. And that from from that perspective, it creates a lot of a lot of frustration and a lot of cost overruns and a lot of projects that either fail or or miss their deadlines. And so I think if we can be realistic about what does it take for for individuals, for leaders, for, for teams to be able to, to bring a different level of transparency, real talk, authenticity, uh, and connection, you know, those, those will then help organizations thrive in new ways. Because then you're gonna get a better sense of, of, of innovation and the best thinking, and it becomes very difficult for folks to bring their best thinking when they're operating from fear of perfectionism or fear of, comp- or, or being hindered by competition out of ego when the ideal is we're going to work better if we actually know how to collaborate where it's a true give and take. And so I think these things are, are what I often said, this is the lubricant to actually make your change initiatives work if we put the investment into it. And so I think our organizations, we've not been conditioned this way in organizations. Our business schools don't teach this. Our, our leaders don't necessarily practice this. And again, going back to healing, what I often see is you have a lot of leaders and change agents who are still operating from wounding, so they're still operating from a fear-based perspective. And and I often say this work is about the dance of the ego, my, my need for control versus my permission to let go. And as I train leaders, as I train facilitators, it's helping them, you know, kind of, stop holding on to the braces Tarzan going through the jungle and being able to like really kind of just flow and 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 be free and and feel into what is and and what becomes possible for them and what becomes possible for their teams and their organizations when they're not so tightly held by fear and control.
1: Ah. In the work that we we attempt to do in business and organizations we find that there is that resi- there is that resistance to some of the particularly the emotional component of this and we I think we struggle all the time with how to message it how to break through in, in so many ways and we're always thrilled when we can but always frustrated when it doesn't happen and I think you you you've hit a Upon a, a terrific point that that what what has often traditionally been taught, and we've actually had people say this to to us that well, I wasn't taught that way to to be vulnerable, to be more open, to be more affirming, to be all kinds of po- what we would like to think of positive things. It's it's less about what someone's doing right, but in many ways about making sure that we're keeping people from doing things wrongly. And we point out, again, we point out the negative as opposed to try to highlight what we hope is the positive and universal and and human. How, how do we, how do any of us break through? How do you break through to have people really listen to you and begin to understand what you're, what you're saying and talking about? So a few responses to that. <laughs> I've been thinking about some
2: of, some of where, where, where it's been a challenge and if I were to go back and what I would do differently. I think part of, part of it that comes up for me is readiness. Are they ready for the work I'm bringing? You know, am I pushing too hard or will they come when they're ready? Because they've seen the success otherwise and they know that, okay, They've done enough work to be able to get to that place. That, that's one way to think about it. Another way I think about it is, you know, one of one of the the gifts of my time at Allen Fisher was I was sent to an artist commune in Canada to learn how to incorporate the arts into creative facilitation. And I think, in so often we have this talking way about us in these organizations that we're talking. Analytically, we're talking, we're talking, we're doing like basically talk therapy in organizations. And so we'll, we'll mention vulnerability. We'll mention some of the values of this and people are getting it on a, on a head level and they're either accepting it or rejecting it. I've just learned that for so often it's, it's more of how do you create an experience where it just organically comes out of someone. And then in the debrief, you can then start to say, okay, what are we seeing here? What are you noticing? And we're either getting them to have epiphanies, awareness, insights, wisdoms coming through, or they're feeling something. So we did our first Project Compassion engagement was with corrections officers at Cook County Jail in Chicago. We walked in and 20, 20 corrections officers, we were literally in the jail, Talking about compassion. And so we had everyone just sitting there, you know, with like, what are they going to tell us? What is this stuff, right? And we opened with storytelling. Now, one of the, one of the guys on our, our team was a, a former hostage negotiator for the FBI. And we also have, I was sitting next to the former head of the FBI National Academy at Quantico. And so we you know, kind of taking this idea of, like, the arts and creative facilitation, I said, you know, first we just got to get them into the hearts. We don't need to give them models. We don't have to justify. We don't have to, like, make our case for who we are. We just have to get them to feel. And so this office, this uh, the hostage negotiator, you know, told the story of when he was shot during a school shooting. So this was... In upper and the northern suburbs of Chicago. About 30 years ago, a woman shot up a, you know, came in and did a mass shooting in a elementary school. Then she went into the neighborhood, and then she broke into his house and took his family hostage. He was 20 years old. He was able to negotiate to get his parents out. And then when he reached for the gun, she shot him. And we had just come off like X number of school sh- or mass shootings by the time we got to the Cook County Jail. That brought people in. And then we gave them an invitation to start telling their stories. So I think to answer your question, I think part of the way in is to make it personal and real, not, not, not give all the statistics, not give all the, this is the impact and this is, I mean, we're, we're, we're catering to the head, but we gotta be nourishing the, the heart. And what I find is once you get corporate folks, once you get men, once you get men in hypermasculine systems into their heart, you got them. And they're able to then start to, to experience the experience differently. They, come, they start to come with you. So, so part of it, I think, is storytelling. Sometimes I would go and just bring in something playful, to get people to get silly and get out of their, 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 their mask. You know, I think one of, the, one of the best things we can do for folks in corporate settings is to get them out of their performance, get them out of their mask and get them out of their seriousness, you know? Get them into joy, get them into play. I think I, I, I often, when I train facilitators, I spend a lot of time on creativity and play. And the first thing I do is ask So where do you experience play in your life as an adult today? And where are you having fun? And then where are you bringing that into your facilitated spaces? And more often than not, they start to have a reckoning. And they're like, I'm not having fun in my life. Like if you're not having fun in your life, how are you you gonna bring fun into the workplace? You can't fake that, (laughs) right? So it becomes an opportunity to say, where's my opportunity for personal growth in the area of play? and creativity, and then I'm bringing joy into my life, and it's often an epiphany moment for them. I think it's also the same in organizations. You know, What is our belief system? And so for me, I don't walk in thinking, oh, I'm going to talk to a bunch of leaders who don't want to hear me. I'm like, I'm going to come in and talk to a bunch of humans that are yearning for X, Y, or Z. Let's speak to that. And then we can talk about our agenda and compassion and our topics. But first, let's just bring them into the conversation, invite them into the conversation. You know, one of the things, like I said, majority of the folks that I work with are conservatives on the right wing, uh, and I'm a queer progressive New Yorker who, who works with these folks. What, what opens the door for so many of these folks is, one, when I, when I connect with them, they're often expecting a fight they're often expecting that I'm going to wrong them, I'm going to rationalize for them, I'm gonna bring my agenda or I'm gonna to expect to convert them to my agenda. And I do none of that. I just witness them and I'm, I get curious. I'm like, oh, tell me about this. I, I And what, what what we find is that they start to say, you know, wow, I, I, you're, you're not what I expected. And I'm non-threatening and I'm just witnessing them. I'm just, I'm just letting them be them without any agenda. They have to be anything other than they, they are. The one thing I'll say is when I think about spiritual understanding, I often, I often think of it as my work is to just discover my truth, then to seek to see someone else in their truth beyond beneath the protective layers. And then to accept both truths as true without one being better than the other.
0: Sean, this has been such an insightful conversation and just really meaningful. Maybe we could just end today. Where where are you finding fun in your life right now? <laughs> what makes you come alive?
2: Well, <laughs> it's a three-year-old German shepherd. <laughs> so I, you know, it's funny. I, I've been with my boyfriend. Not who I they expected to meet not the life I expected to have now and I I when I moved to Philadelphia I had this vision I was going to be in Philadelphia I was going to be in the city and continuing to live in an urban <laughs> like an urban existence you know now I'm on 5 acres of land across the street from <laughs> Valley Forge National Park with with my boyfriend and a 3 year old German shepherd and He's different than a bunny rabbit <laughs> who actually sees Jim as more the, the dad and I'm just the, the playmate to, to throw balls. And, and so I think being able to just have this, this, this animal that, that all, all he wants to do is wants love and wants play, right? And, I, I, you know, I gave a talk. I did a, I did a book signing a few weeks ago. And it was the first time where I realized I'm like, oh whoa! If we're here, the dog's back in the crate. Oh no, we have to go back. I woke up three times in the middle of the night, going, the dog's in a crate. And so after I'm like, after we're we're not gonna stay. We're gonna like after breakfast, we're gonna go back, let the dog out. And so I didn't realize how much of a like that responsibility. I didn't realize the amount of care, the amount of just again unconditional love. And that even in my most serious moments or in my most intellectual times figuring out X, Y, and Z, the moment that this dog walks over to me and like sits on the, I mean, it, it just brings pure joy.
1: Sean, I think we could sit here all day and have this conversation with you. is fascinating. Thank you for everything you've shared. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you bring to the world, the gifts that you share, and the enlightenment that we know you are bringing. And that means a lot to us because I think we, we, we're, we're partners in that same, that same kind of work. And it's, it's really important to us. And we're so grateful that it's important to you too. Yeah. So thank you for being with us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me a pleasure One of the things that fascinated me most about what Sean had to say and it came it came up several times in the conversation is about how we tend to intellectualize feelings and listening and relationships and and so many of things that are just integral to our lives and you know what Sean was saying that I, I really found to be powerful is that we can't simply intellectualize. We have to feel. We have to dig deeper in into our spirits, into our souls, to truly to truly have transformational change, to heal ourselves, our own wounds, our relationships, and well, we'll make our lives much better when we do.
0: I was just reminded many times in that discussion of the numbers of men who have reached out to us over the last 11 years of some of the teltu's history men uh for example a world war ii veteran who has actually been on the podcast many many years ago holding something inside for 70 70 years, years. or another man who's in his 60s and and talking about some of the abuse that he experienced as a child and just the scores of men who have held on to really deep dark and painful things. And, uh, one of the things that we highlighted in the introduction is just that here at someone to tell to we often call ourselves permission givers. And so if you are a man and you are carrying something that maybe you've not been able to, to tell someone about, but that's why our organization is in existence. And so we just encourage you to go to our website, someone to tell org, And we are here to listen. We are here to support you because we, we truly care about who you are. And thank you as always, just for supporting this journey with us to being being a part of this journey with us you as listeners are just as much a part of these conversations as we are we're the ones guiding and maybe facilitating the dialogues but we hope that you feel a part of this community with us and so as always just we encourage you to go to our website someone to tell to learn more about our work and and also to follow sean harvey's work you can find him on linkedin so thanks again for this incredible conversation until we listen again Come <smart noise> on.